Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Pung, and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Today, I'm joined on the show by Dr. Dave Carmody. Dr. Carmody is a child and adolescent psychiatrist, as well as the co-founder and medical director of the telehealth psychiatry service, Call to Mind. In addition to this, he's a co-host of The Psych Review, which is a podcast reviewing recent developments in psychiatry. Hi, Dr. Dave Carmody. Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Alice. It's great to have you join us today. To start us off, I'd like to get a sense of what work and what different roles you're currently doing. Yeah, so I, I work across a number of different roles. I'm a, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist by training, and I do some clinical work, working with young people and families mostly, doing a mix of some therapy and some general psychiatric management. I also have a role as the founder and medical director of a service called Call to Mind, which is a telehealth service, a group of about 25 or so psychiatrists that see people from all around Australia. So I have a role as the medical director of that service. Uh, and I also work in a consultation role with child protection in Victoria as well. Cool. Sounds like a bit of variety. Yeah, I found that's been a, a good way of keeping interested in all of the different roles that I do, but also being able to translate some skills across those roles as well. The other thing you haven't mentioned that is of interest to me is that you have a podcast of your own. I'm one third of a, a podcast, yes, the Psych Review. So if any listeners out there, feel free to look us up wherever you get your podcast, the Psych Review. I work, it's a, uh, we do reviews of uh, recent research and developments in psychiatry in Australia, a uh, couple of psychiatrists and a psychiatry registrar, and it's reviewing papers. So it's like a little mini journal club, but we try and make it more interesting than the standard journal clubs. Yeah, I love that. I'm very much an auditory learner, so I think podcasts are a great way to learn. Definitely. Um. I want to get a bit of a sense of how you ended up where you are today. So that's a lot of things that you're doing currently. What drew you to medicine and med school in the first place? So I I went straight into medicine, uh, a medicine arts degree straight after high school. So I don't know if it was that well thought through at the time, but I certainly was drawn more to the art side of things and, and enjoyed that that part of it. And then after med school, I went and worked around doing a few different jobs around Australia doing some locuming and eventually ended up working mostly in psychiatry locums, mostly because at the time they paid slightly more. So I started doing those and then really enjoyed it and found that I'd sort of found my tribe, I suppose, and then enjoyed that work. So went on to apply for, I spent some time overseas in, in, in New York doing some placements over there and then came back to St. Vincent's in Melbourne to do my training. Yeah, cool. What were those placements in New York? Yeah, it was a, a an observer role at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. So I was sort of one rung below medical student. So I was sort of just tagging mm-hmm. along, watching what was going on there, and it was it was really interesting. It was, I, I think, the most interesting part of it was being able to live in New York. The second most interesting part was once you get past that, the, there were sort of big celebrities in psychiatry. You know, the people that wrote the DSM and that I knew from textbooks and stuff. The medicine was very similar, and I think in some ways. The work that I did later on in in hospitals in Australia was on an equal footing in terms of the the quality of medicine that's being done. I think is it's easy to sort of be starstruck by the big names in in that you come across, but the work was very similar. So that was interesting to see. Yeah, that's an interesting route into any sort of training program. I think. Mm, yes, it certainly gave me stuff to talk about in the interviews, which was <laughs> is always half the challenge. And once you got started in psychiatry, had you always had the child and adolescent side of it in your mind or when did that come into the piece? That, again, sort of 
developed over the the course of it. I did some placements in child and adolescent psychiatry. And I did some work in in forensic child and adolescent psychiatry as well, and, and really enjoyed the clinical encounters. I, I particularly enjoyed the complexity of working with families and systems. I think that you, you get to do a bit more of that side of work. There's a strong element of psychotherapy as part of child and adolescent work as well. And I find that it's a, a bit more sort of playful. You get to do like actual play therapy. You get to sort of, there's a bit more banter and humor and use of that in, in, in consults as well, which I enjoyed too. That's so nice. I feel like my mind immediately goes to the dark side of the mentally unwell child, but you can analyze what that means about me. <laughs> well, I think- I it, think it, that child psychiatry would be harder than the, adults. There's a, there is a, there is a joke in, in child psychiatry that, that most of the training is figuring out why you did child psychiatry. It's sort of <laughs> that's sort of your own, your own therapy and things like that, and, and gradually figure it out. So I think I, I think I'm probably there, and that's and probably the stronger for it. And then when did all of the other roles start to come into the piece? Was that after you'd completed your training, or were you dabbling in other things along the way? The telepsychiatry business that I set up that was during whilst I was training. Um, and I was looking ahead to when I was hoping to, you know, once I was finished my training and working as a consultant and had always had an interest in rural and remote medicine. So that was an area that I was hoping to to at least have some role in, but also was interested by the idea of the process of setting up a business and what that would be like to grow a practice and a brand and things like that. And actually that became then a, a really um, enjoyable part of it and I really got into that side of things so that was in the last couple of years of my training that I started it up and then and it's gradually grown, grown from there so that was back in 2018 that we started it so it was before COVID before telehealth became cool and we were back before it was cool. Ahead of the trends. Yeah that's I'm right. intrigued to know can you tell me exactly what call to mind is now but yeah. I'm also intrigued to know what the idea was and where it started from and if that's different to what it's ended up being now? Yeah, that's a good question. I think when it started, the idea was we could see that there was a, a lot, a lot of demand for psychiatry services for in rural areas, and GPs that were looking for some guidance. People that sort of fit in that you hear about the missing middle in mental health. People that probably that there's a level of complexity that GPs feels that they need some supports, but they may not necessarily be meeting criteria for the local mental health service or admissions or things like that. So it's people that sort of fall in that very wide chasm. So that's where I saw there was a potential role for telehealth. And I think combining that with the idea that I think there is a growing, and I, you, you probably have a better insight into this through creating careers in medicine, but I think a lot of medical folk are more interested in some different ways of working and flexibility and things like that when it comes to the types of work that they can do. So rather than just the sort of standard bricks and mortar, set up your practice, hang up the shingle and do that until you eventually get asked to stop by opera. So there's sort of, this was a, a way of trying to provide a different way of doing psychiatry. And most of the people that now work for our group are people that might not have been in private psychiatry because they're working alongside their public roles or other part-time roles, balancing it with young families like myself or a range of different roles. So it's. I think that there's a big part of it. I think one of the key components of why it's grown is that there is a, a market for psychiatrists and for doctors who want a, a different way of working and a, a, a flexible way of working. So I think that's why telehealth has worked well for that. And it's, it's been fairly similar. I think over the time that COVID was a big moment for telehealth, 
it didn't really change the work that we did. We didn't see a massive change in the number of referrals. It was it was steadily climbing. I think that probably reflects there was a really large bank of unmet needs in the community already for psychiatry. So it was it wasn't like there was a sudden spike related to COVID. But I think what it did mm-hmm. do was brought telehealth very much into the mainstream and people didn't need to you didn't need to sell people on the technology of it, which was fun because that's the boring bit of talking about, oh, do I have to download something or whatever? You could talk about the the interaction. That probably meant that it brought it to a wider audience and there was a change in some of the Medicare stuff around that. So we started being able to see people in metropolitan areas too. Since then, we've now grown to about, I think, 26 or seven psychiatrists now working through the platform. And we've recently partnered with a telepsychology group as well called someone.health. They've got about 200 psychologists providing low-cost and bulk-build psychology. So now we work alongside them doing some like shared care models and cross-referring. So that's that's where I think things are going next for Call to Mind and Someone.Health is that adding in those different offerings and the opportunities of bringing together care teams regardless of your geography. Yeah, incredible. That's huge that you've built that. If you imagine... 26 or so clinicians sitting in a private room somewhere. That's a huge private practice. Mm, yeah. Um, so it's a, a huge practice. Yeah, I get a lot of satisfaction out of seeing people who might not have been able. It's sort of making use of the medical workforce more effectively in a way that you're bringing people into a private role. And then I think something that we hear a lot working in private practice in psychiatry is that there's a sense of like the worried well. And I think that's not quite, that's certainly not what we see. We see it's people who are in that that missing middle where there's certainly significant distress, a lot of complexity and risk, but you can manage that, I think, in the community with making use of different resources like local GPs, psychologists, other telehealth services, that sort of stuff. How does it look for a psychiatrist logging into work for Call to Mind for a purely clinical role? When you talked about flexibility, is that do they do shifts? What sort of hours are they working? How many minimum or maximum? Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of ways of working. People can either work as contractors where they uh, set their own hours um, and basically have a very flexible calendar where you can open up um, a session or two sessions or you can open up hours across the day. So quite a few of our psychiatrists might do a couple of hours each evening after kids have gone to bed or something like that. We also have some psychiatrists that work as employees. So they have like set rosters that they work as well. But most people are working as contractors where they set their own hours and set the the types of referral that they're comfortable seeing based on their specialty. When we get referrals, we have a mental health nurse that reviews all of the referrals, makes sure that they're suitable, gets any additional information if that's required, and then matches that to the right psychiatrist for the appointment. So the psychiatrist basically gives us their availability, log in on the day. There's a like one login to get into the patient practice management software that we use cloud-based practice management software and that's where the call takes place and notes. And then hopefully that stuff causes as little friction as possible so they can concentrate on the bit that they're trained for. Mm. And what's the patient population look like? Has it ended up being a rural population or have you ended up with more metropolitan people now that things have shifted a bit? It's a mix. We have about 70% would be in regional and rural areas still. So probably about 30% metropolitan. There's no particular areas. It's pretty much across the whole country that we get referrals from. We've got about a a network of about 6,000 GPs that refer to us. And since 2018, I think we've now seen about 21,000 patients from around Australia. So yeah, probably about 70, 80% of those from regional areas. 
Yeah, wow. Those are huge numbers. Mm. I'm interested to hear about the business side of things because you said you got really interested in business through all of this. Had you had any previous experience or training in it or were you kind of learning as you went? Uh, zero. Zero experience. <laughs> well, I suppose I came from a uh, – my parents ran a small business and still do and so I had a lot of exposure to that, I think, growing up and that maybe was something that was a part of that sense of liking the idea of building something or making something, which is something that you can sometimes – miss a bit in medicine, I think. It was very much a learning as we went. Um, and something that does happen a bit, particularly for medical businesses, I think, is that it can feel like you're sort of reinventing the wheel for any of these challenges. But I think that's not actually the case. There's There are lots of resources around. And, and once you get down to the actual, beyond the, the clinical component of it, medical businesses and, and are very similar to other businesses. So I think that there's then a lot of the resources that I made use of were very much non-medical specific. So it was people who had ran yoga studios or marketing companies or things like that. So there was a lot of the actual challenges and obstacles were pretty common across all different businesses. Mm. Did you have trouble finding software that worked well and all of that before we've had such a big boom in telehealth software recently or was there things around when you started I think looking? we came in at a good time, I think, where there, were, there had already been some of that, that hard work done to, to set up some of those different platforms. And there are a whole range of third-party platforms there. IT in the medical space, and I, I think anyone who's worked in a hospital or been to a doctor knows that it's a pain in the neck is that there's no, like, the systems are clunky, they look terrible, they're hard to use, and they require huge amounts of hours to generate, to input data and it's almost impossible to extract meaningful data from that so in short my experience hasn't been that great with the tech side of things but i think that's probably common to a lot of industries as well but something particularly about medical stuff i think that it seems to be a long way behind some of the other industries yeah I'd definitely mirror those sentiments i'm intrigued to know a bit about your medical director role first of all what's your weekly split of work what does that look like at the moment in terms of the different roles that you do and then what sort of responsibilities fall within that medical director role yep so i do two days clinical two days uh with the cause of mind practice and and then one day at the child protection service that i work with vaca so that has evolved a bit over time as the business has grown it used to be that i was director receptionist bookkeeper, IT support, the, the whole lot, which I think is just part of starting something and then gradually growing a team. And that comes with its own challenges as well of then bringing out hiring staff and learning how to do, how to hire people and how to manage then teams and then the team grows and then you have to learn how to manage someone who's managing other teams and all the while trying to not go broke. So it's, it's quite a, a challenging balancing act. We were lucky last year to have some investment from a group called Healthbright who now that they've sort of invested in both Call to Mind and Someone.Health. So now I've got a much bigger team of people around to, to assist with a lot of those roles. And now as the medical director, my focus is very much on providing the, the sort of clinical lens on the work that we do, making sure that, that the quality is really high of the work that we do across the whole group both the psychiatry and the psychology practice support to the clinicians so that they feel like they can do their best work and feel supported and growing the service further in terms of different offerings that we have. So 
We recently uh, brought in a, a specific evidence-based ADHD assessment pathway and, and treatment pathway that we've started to use. So developing that and building some of the evidence around that and continuing to grow the, the clinical team as well by recruiting further psychiatrists and psychologists to our platform as well. Mm. I am interested actually about the fact that I imagine with any sort of telehealth psychiatry business, it is going to attract a lot of people with looking for ADHD diagnoses and treatments. Have you found that with Call to Mind? Yeah, there's been, I would say over the last two years, it went from being a single digits percentage probably when we first started out in terms of the the referrals. So probably 30% of our referrals would be people wanting to explore that as a possible diagnosis or where it's been recommended that they look into that. So I think that I don't, I'm not sure if it's specifically telehealth. I think that there's probably, it's across the board, talking to colleagues who work in mm-hmm. private and other contexts. I think that there's a similar pattern there as well, that there seems to be a combination of a very large number of people who haven't been able to access this type of service before or haven't had an awareness of that issue combined with a sort of a lot of coverage of that at the moment. And I think it's on people's minds to explore that as an option. Yeah, it's definitely a trend that I see in the media, not in medical literature necessarily, but the general mainstream media. Yeah. Uh, and from what I know, I like showing, showing my age is the, I'm not on TikTok, but I, from what I hear from my, I talk to my patients and they tell me what's on TikTok. There's a lot of stuff on TikTok mm-hmm. about it. That's what I hear. There's definitely stuff on TikTok about it. I'm probably too old to be on TikTok, but I don't think that's probably doing you too many favors at the moment. So it sounds good that you've got a good protocol to face all those patients with. Yeah, look, we found that there was a lot of different ways that people were going about assessing ADHD and treating ADHD. And from the client perspective, I think that they had, it's an incredibly difficult thing to navigate of how to find suitable assessments and there's a lot of different a lot of variety there's a lot of time that's spent doing it it's expensive so we wanted to find a more consistent way both for the clinicians so that they can feel comfortable that they're working within a really solid basis so that there's um, because the the assessment of ADHD and its treatment it does come with risks and it's it can be challenging and also from the patient perspective that they know what that's going to look like, some certainty around the timelines of that, what it's going to involve. It's been up and running for three or four months now. We're getting referrals through and it seems to be going really well and we're monitoring a lot of PREMS and PROMS, the patient-reported experience measures and the patient-reported outcome measures to monitor the response to that as well to to build some evidence that this is a a good way of going about it. Mm. Well, it's fantastic that patients have access to your service even if no matter what the outcome of that appointment is whether they get reassured that they don't have ADHD mm. or diagnosed and treated for ADHD I think if they weren't able to access something that we've put very much central to that assessment process is that it's really important given the, the nature of that diagnosis and also the some of the comorbidities that can go with it is that it's really important to have uh, a general psychiatric assessment as part of that to sort of understand the whole picture rather than just going based on questionnaires and making a diagnosis on the spot I think it's really important to have and appreciation for the whole person and also any other issues that might be either contributing or presenting in a similar way to ADHD symptoms. Is there any other particular conditions that you see more frequently via a telehealth service, things that you think people wouldn't have previously sought out help for or feel more comfortable seeking help 
through that means? Yeah, that's that is that, that's a good question as well. I think there is a growing awareness. I think certainly even in the time that I've been working in psychiatry, which is not very long, I think that there is a growing awareness of some of the effects of trauma and complex trauma and things like that. That I think is a big part of the referrals that we see as well. A lot, a common referral to us would be people who have been seeing a GP plus or minus psychologist for a long time with depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms, and then the GP might flag, you know, could there be a component of PTSD or a trauma picture here? And that's something that we can then uh, we explore as part of the psychiatric assessment. And I think that that's quite a common source of concern for for both GPs and patients. And it's a really good opportunity to sort of reframe or re, you know come to a different shared understanding of what might be going on. And the feedback that I get from certainly from my own anecdotal experience of seeing young people who often have had different forms of developmental trauma or adversity is sometimes that telehealth can be a little bit more approachable in that way, particularly for people. There is some evidence that people who have experienced trauma can find a little bit more approachable and easier to manage because you don't have the sort of the physical proximity that, that face-to-face medicine has and people can have a little bit more control over the encounter in a way. That's been really interesting. Mm-hmm. I've had anecdotally, a few people have yeah. told me that they wouldn't have been comfortable seeing someone face-to-face, but they were comfortable doing telehealth. Yeah, that's interesting. The comfort of being in your own house is being in control of the situation. Yeah, and look, I, I can imagine that it would go both ways, that sometimes you could have people might prefer not to be in their own environment to actually to be in, in the, a particular physical setting to see a psychiatrist, and that's that's totally fine. But it does seem to suit some people well. Mm. I I'm interested to hear a bit about what you think the future of these sort of services involve and if there's anything that you've got on the cards for Call to Mind or any particular big changes yep. that you see coming or you'd yeah. like to see coming. I think mostly to date, I think that the way that we've been practicing is is pretty traditional in a way that there's the digital component in the sense that you're doing it over a video call. But in a lot of ways, it's very similar to a traditional private practice or a mental health service where you're seeing referred by GPs, see a psychiatrist, and then do reviews. I think that there's probably some room to, um, and one of the things that I'm motivated to try and and excited to try and uh, institute is, is more of the sort of shared care approaches of bringing together multidisciplinary teams. So being able to bring in, for example, in the work that I do with children and adolescents, having a a telehealth psychologist involved to do some individual work. There might be the option to involve a, um, a pediatrician or an occupational therapist to sort of build a bit of an MDT around a young person. And if someone is in rural New South Wales where that's not available, I think telehealth can be a way of bringing that together. It also means that you have maybe greater choice of the types of who you can include in that care team too. So that's one thing I think will, will be part of what we do. I think that there's still a lot of room to include some of the digital therapies in in the work that we do and sort of as as part of a sort of multimodal approach to therapy. So combining traditional psychology treatments or psychotherapy alongside some of the digital practices, use of different multimedia, as you mentioned yourself, you prefer that you like the sort of auditory learning. And I think that would work well for some aspects of say CBT that can be converted into that sort of setting. So I think that's going to be something that we see being used, maybe not as an alternative to therapy, but maybe as an adjunct to it, augmenting it a bit. 
Other things like that, I think I'm a bit outdated with my knowledge on this. All I'm imagining is one thing that we got shown in our psych term in uni that I think was called uh, Mujin, yeah. but it was yeah. very old. Uh, is there is that something that's commonly used in psychiatry these days, online sort of tools to... There are some good ones around at the moment. There's a lot that are based through some of the universities that are doing projects around this. So there's one one project in particular called This Way Up that does some CBT online. But I think we're still at the stage where the main ones that have got an evidence base are fairly similar to previous techniques and CBT approaches. And I think that there's probably room to the ones that are more innovative are not as aren't seeing the same sort of level of uptake. So the use of like gaming therapy for children and adolescents, the use of other sort of integrated apps and things like that that people can use as part of treatment for addiction or treatment for activity scheduling, that side of things. So I think it's something that is out there and there'd be probably some people who would listen to this and get very frustrated that they've got the that, that technology exists. But I don't think it's sort of necessarily being included and incorporated into uh, day-to-day work that we're doing. Yeah, well, I feel like so many people just can't access appropriate psychotherapy. So having those sort of strategies where we can give more care to more people is definitely Mm. the way of the future. I'm not sure whether we're going to be doing therapy in the metaverse. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) You don't need legs to do therapy. Most therapy, yeah, no, pretty much all therapy. You don't need to do, you don't, equine therapy, you need, you need legs. But other than that, I think we could do it in the metaverse. Oh, it's probably one of the areas of medicine most suited to That's telehealth. That's true. Yeah, and it's one of the ones that post-COVID has seen, whereas a lot of other areas, there's a spike and then it dropped off. In mental health, it seems to have spiked and then fit, stayed the same. So it's got persistence for people are continuing to use it. Yeah, incredible. Now, I'm personally a bit interested in what led you to start a podcast. I did have a quick listen to your podcast and it was a bit all over my head, but I do think it's a great way for people that are psychiatry inclined to keep up to date on the latest stuff in Australia. So how did that all come about? We started it. Uh, I, there was a, some colleagues uh, of mine that I was doing training with. So Shakira, Maz, and now we've recently and in the last couple of years have had Alana join the team as well. We were all training together and knew each other through that. I think that what we saw was there was there's not a huge amount of you know really exciting groundbreaking research in in psychiatry. It's pretty slow moving. It's not vaccine research or something where there's stuff changing or AI where it's like new papers every single day. It was a little bit dull, and we were trying to keep up to date with stuff and trying to build our sort of research knowledge around so we could do projects and stuff like that as part of our training. So that's where it started. We wish there was a a podcast that would just keep us up to date. So that's pretty much how it started was we wanted it, so we start recording it. I think we've done now like 40-something episodes or something like that now and I've got a good base of fans that we occasionally run into at conferences and stuff like that, which is great. And it's been really fun to do and it's certainly been a really great to as a way of keeping up to date with things and hearing about things that I wouldn't normally read about in my own specific subspecialty. And it's also been a bit more fun than trying to do it just from the journal at home. Yeah, incredible. Out of all of the things that you're currently doing, do you have a particular favorite or is it that hard to choose? I still really enjoy the clinical work that I do. I think that's great. And I'm, I, I realize in my career as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, I'm still very much in the early stages of that. I really enjoy learning from all of the families and young people that I see 
and those interactions. And I'm also enjoying the continued learning that I'm having through my own supervision and stuff like that along the way. So that's probably a, a key part of it. I also really enjoy the experience of growing a business and continuing to see that grow now that we've got an investment involved and branching out into other areas. So that's been a really great balance I've found to some of the clinical work is having a bit more of a systems view and developing things rather than focusing on the patient in front of you. So I think it's been a really nice balance to have. So I think I would struggle to do one without the other. Mm. And do you have any advice for anyone that is similarly in business inclined, so has a good idea, they're sitting on it, they're not really sure whether or not they're the right person to do it or they don't think they have the skills, that sort of thing? Because I think you hear a lot of people in medicine come up with Mm. all these great ideas that someone will probably bring to life one day. But what made you think you were the right person to do it? And do you have any advice for anyone? Yeah, I think there's a real, something that we do in medicine is we train for so many years and there's so much of a an expectation that you, you know, in order to learn something, you have to train 14 years to do it or something and spend time overseas and get a PhD or whatever. That I don't think it's necessarily the same for a lot of business stuff is that there's a sense that you hear, and I certainly felt this way. I was like, I haven't done an MBA. I haven't done a commerce degree. I don't know how to start this stuff. And then, yeah, I think you learn as you go in that way. And I think that the most important thing is not so much the brilliant idea and more the ability to bring that to life and see it through and stick with it. I think that's the really hard bit. So I think I would encourage people, if they have an idea, don't be shy about sharing the idea. No one's going to pinch it because they're not going to do the hard work. So share the idea, talk about it, get feedback. And then if you want to give it a go, just get stuck in and you'll figure it out as you go. Yeah, I love that. That's great advice. Now for our final question, it's something we ask everyone that comes on the show. If you weren't doing the work that you're currently doing, if you were doing something completely different outside of medicine, what would be your dream career? I I would be, oh, good question. I'm torn. I would be a boat builder. I would make wooden boats. (laughs) Like tiny little model boats or actual life-size boats? Yeah, like like real boats. In dinghies, sailing boats. I think I'd... (laughs) This this sounds like it could be a hobby still. It's hard to get the time to do. That's the thing about hobbies, isn't it? That it's hard to get the time to do them. And, yeah, yeah, you've got too many jobs. That's it. And so it's it's that's my like burnout project or something is to, to move to Tassie and build wooden boats <laughs> for a, a few years, something like that. Yeah, love that. Sounds beautiful. That's been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really interesting to hear about the conception of the whole business and all the different oh, thanks things. Thanks very much that for having me. Well. And I've been following along with uh, CCIM along the way because, uh, as a sometimes frustrated medico, I think it's good to have a range of options and hear about what people are doing in the space. So, thanks very much for providing that. Mm, sure, people will love to hear your opinions on all of this. It's been very different from the typical right. career. So, we love that here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes of this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence, and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognizes the continuing connection to lands, water, and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging. 